Hello and welcome to Children's University Live, a podcast series from Children's University, the charity that encourages, tracks and celebrates young people's participation in learning beyond the classroom. Now, if you're new to Children's University, do check out childrensuniversity.co.uk for more information about how we help over 100,000 children each year to develop essential skills, confidence and character through informal learning. To bookmark this podcast, just hit subscribe on the podcast app where you're listening to this podcast right now. This episode was recorded live at the Children's University Conference in October 2019. It features Saeed Acha, MBE, giving his keynote address, followed by Q&A with Children's University CEO, Helen O'Donnell. Now, Saeed is a man who wears many hats. Get ready for this. He is Chief Executive of Youth Leads, where he's helped more than 3,000 young Mancunians access volunteering opportunities and skills development programmes. He's led his organisation to receive Her Majesty the Queen's Award for Voluntary Service. He's a recipient of the Prime Minister's Points of Light Award and was awarded an MBE in the Queen's New Year Honours List 2019. He's a trustee of Step Up to Serve, which leads the I Will campaign to encourage meaningful social action across society. He's also a trustee of Young Manchester, Beacon Bolton Counselling Services, Generation You Employed and is an advisory council member to the Care Tech Foundation. As well as all that, he's a school governor at his former secondary school, Ladybridge High in Bolton, and he's also the Social Mobility Commission's youngest commissioner. As you can probably tell, his story is fascinating and emotive. Enjoy! Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's great to be here in, in Manchester for the Children's University Conference. Um, and, and thank you for in, inviting me along to speak. And thank you all for being here because, well, frankly, you don't have to be here. So thank you for, for being uh, the leaders that want to be better, the leaders that, that want to know how to better serve their communities. Um, and thank you for being the leader that wants to know what today's young people need. So we're off to a cracking start, thank you. I was quite excited when, when I got asked to, to, to speak because I know the power uh, of extracurricular, the true power of extracurricular. I'm a social mobility commissioner and, and I said when the unequal playing field report came out that it was worrying but it was unsurprising. The poorest children are missing out on extracurricular. They are missing out on the things that help them to develop. And I don't like calling them soft skills. I think they are life skills. And not all young people are benefiting equally from the positives that developing these life skills and extracurricular activities can bring. And we say unequal, and that's because it's where you live, it's your household income, it's the ethnicity. And what really interested me when when we were going through this report wasn't the striking statistics about how few young Indian, Pakistani and Bangladeshi young people take part in extracurricular, because I thought, well, I know the answer to that one. I know why. 
because they're at mosque after school. And that was something that the commission didn't think about when they were going through these things. There's cultural barriers as well. Some parents don't like their children uh, taking part in dance or drama, for example. Uh, and I faced similar negativity from, from my family when I had my mind set on going to drama school. So there's a lot of work to be done addressing uh, the cultural uh, issue there. But what interested me the most was the difference in activities uh, offered depending on where you go to school. So private schools having uh, more of a variety, a more middle class uh, things to do, such as sailing or uh, lacrosse, which I thought was a sports brand. I had no idea what it actually was <laughs> until we were going through this report. But volunteering and social action is more common in state schools. And even more common when you look at schools that are in deprived areas. And I've been trying to figure out why. And I wonder, just from my own experience, is it because those who are disadvantaged want to help others and they understand what disadvantage is? We were quite clear in our recommendations that the government needs to invest more into supporting voluntary community and social enterprise organisations to increase access for those who need it the most. We also asked the Department for Education to give more capacity to schools, um, not for the little extras, to provide extracurricular activities, but also for staff to pass on the right guidance on what's available and to increase the quality and meaningful careers advice. And I'm going to share with you now my story of social mobility and, and how extracurricular has played a part in, in my life. So for me... It's not where you are that needs to change, but the opportunities need to be there to break down the barriers. So I'm the chief executive of a Greater Manchester charity called Youth Leads. I'm a representative of Her Majesty the Queen as Deputy Lieutenant of Greater Manchester, and I'm a trustee of a number of charities here in this region uh, and across the UK. And it is social mobility, which is all about giving young people the best chance in life, no matter their background, that has defined me. I was in care for a large part of my childhood. Uh, I was in foster care when I was very young and I don't remember much about that part. But I do remember when I was placed back with my mum when I was six. We lived on a council estate in Bolton. And when I was age nine, I got a little bit too big for my boots, a bit cheeky, a bit, bit naughty. There was a lack of attention at home uh, because of something that happened on a bright, warm summer's day. We, we did have one of those in Bolton. It was the summer before, um, before I started high school. Blue skies, a slight breeze, and, and there was happiness in the air. Because on our council estate, we were getting new doors fitted. The wooden doors were going, and we were getting shiny red PVC doors, so everybody was quite happy. And as the guy was fitting our door, me and my stepdad were in the, in the front room, and I remember actually changing my uh, little sister's nappy. And we heard a loud bang in the hallway. And we walked out and there was my mum, blood on the floor, and she was foaming at the mouth. She'd had a seizure whilst walking down the stairs. Later that week, while she was still in hospital, we found out that she had Fars syndrome, uh, which is a rare neurological disorder, a condition that affects the brain and spinal cord and it slows things down, it makes things more difficult. So inevitably, things had to change at home. My stepdad had to get a job 
because my mum couldn't work and we'd both have to look after my mum and, and my baby sister. And things got a little bit too much for everybody and, and one thing kind of led to another. I was abused at points. My stepdad got involved in the wrong crowd and he had to go on holiday, as my mum said. A long break it was. I thought, well, it's quite a long holiday, this. I wonder where he's gone. I didn't know at the time, but that holiday was prison and that he was dealing drugs. And I only found that out when a knife-wielding man turned up at my door that I answered as a child, shouting after my stepdad, where is he? I'm going to kill him, and I'll kill you if you're hiding him. So it all got a bit too much for me, and I was taken into foster care again. And I want to make a point here that that isn't an extraordinary story. Because young people who are living on these council estates will face similar challenges. I wasn't in foster care for very long until my grandma and an extended family decided uh, to take me in as kinship carers. And I didn't really know them because we'd, often, we'd, we'd see them as often as twice a year. So yes, they were family, but I didn't really know about them and how they lived and things like that. I grew up with um, a very different culture to what was in the, uh, the, the extended family home. And because of that abuse as a child, because of that instability and me playing up, I was at risk of exclusion countless times. And I was very nearly about to follow that path, the typical path of a young person in care, which is most likely to end up in crime and least likely to end up in uh, education. So I know what it's like growing up feeling angry and out of control, believing that the, the world and everybody in it is against you. And that led me to always resist authority. So I ran away multiple times and I was sofa surfing in year nine. And then I think, now, how have I got to where I am now? Because that life is very, very different to the life that I now lead as a 23-year-old CEO and royal representative and commissioner for social mobility. That 12-year-old Saeed would never have thought that yesterday he would be in a swimming pool at the top of a 60-storey block in 40 degrees in central Dubai before flying here for this conference today. And for me, I think I've dug deep enough to find out what it is that changed me. Three things, maybe four, I think have defined me. People, opportunity and passion. And we'll start with the easiest, passion. I'm quite passionate, so once I've got my mind set on something, there isn't much that, that's going to do to persuade me otherwise, but passion's also where I fell down, because if a teacher had really pissed me off, I was adamant that I would key their car at the end of the school day. <laughs> but when it came to the positive things, I never believed that I could go all the way. Opportunity. So I went to a state school in Bolton, double the national average of students from free school meals there, but the school gave me opportunities. So even though I was sofa surfing in year nine, I still went to school pretending everything was all right, they had no idea. And it's because school was the constant. School was the only stable thing in my life, knowing that it was there every day, no matter what. I didn't care for grades, didn't care what I did there, just knowing it was there and there was somewhere for me to go was enough. But I realised that that wasn't sustainable because that instability was affecting my behaviour and, as I say, I was close to that permanent exclusion. So as they typically do at school, they start to give you responsibilities and the first one was to help out at school open evening and I thought, 
It's a bit brave of them to do that. <laughs> I don't know who thought that was a good idea. Um, I also started doing the school magazine because my English teacher knew that my writing was all right. And they knew I wanted to do something with media because I quite enjoyed drama. So they helped me set up a mini kind of school radio station that was just in the hall on a laptop with YouTube and a microphone. We're taking requests from everybody in the hall at lunchtime. They put me on programmes with the Prince's Trust, and in particular, one programme that sent me down to London for the very, very first time. I hadn't even been to Manchester at this point. And this was a, uh, this was a trip to pitch a business idea to secret millionaires in year 10. It was the Mosaic Enterprise Challenge. It was something we did as a group. Uh, we had to play an online business game, and we, we came first in the Northwest, which meant that we then had to come up with a business idea to go and pitch, and it had to be something linked with education. Everything was going really well, but we came third, so I wasn't really happy about that. So we did it again the year after and came second. Um, but then I'd left because I was in year 11, so I never got it to, to first. Um, so I was that young person who was the kind of... The, the, the one who would back chat all the time, but is the one who was equally quite inquisitive and always wanted more. And, and I remember the challenges. I remember the slapdowns to my ambition. And we all had or, or, or still know, if we work in a school, a teacher who would be pessimistic about absolutely everything in life. You know, you'll not go far, you'll end up working at Asda. And I remember the point that could have thrown me off for good. And I was in year 11, helping out with this school magazine, and a teacher had pulled me out of a science lesson, and she said, Saeed, it's GCSE time. You've got to focus on your GCSEs now. So we're going to stop you doing the school magazine. But for me, it wasn't about grades. It was that opportunity of the school magazine, the feeling that I actually had purpose that was keeping me in school in the first place. I wanted and I needed something to focus on, and I needed purpose. So after that conversation, in my typical resistance to authority, I'm not standing for this attitude, I wanted to prove the school and that teacher in particular wrong. At the same time, in 2011, the media was very against young people, describing me and my peers as feral animals, scum, yobs, all real headlines. And I knew then that the conversation needed to change. And I wanted to see young people leading that. I was fed up of having decisions made for me. So I set up Explode magazine when I was 15 in year 11. And today that magazine is part of a larger charity, Youth Leads, that works across Greater Manchester supporting thousands of young people into employment and publishing positive stories about our generation. And for that one bad person, there have been hundreds of good people. When I had the idea to set up Explode, I needed funds, as, as, as everything needs. I had a phone at the time. I can't quite remember where I'd nicked it from, but I had a phone, and it was on O2. So I thought, I'm going to email the chief executive of O2. So I did. I said, here's my idea. You're a youth brand. Do you want to back it? Didn't hear anything back. The same teacher that pulled me out of a lesson came to pull me out of another lesson and said, oh, there's somebody really important on the phone. And I thought it was my social worker. I thought I was going to move house or something like that. I said, no, I'm all right, thanks. No, I don't want to take that trip. Yeah, you do. You do want to take it. So I took the phone call and he said, hi, Saeed, it's Ronan Dunn. I'm the chief executive of O2. 
I've just read your email and I want to support what you want to do. We discussed it and he said, I'm going to give you £300. I thought, right, get some weed with that. <laughs> and uh, I spoke to some of my friends um, and they said, no, Saeed, you can't do that. <laughs> Let's get this off the ground. Um, within the month, we'd spent 300 quid. We'd bought a laptop, we'd hired a room, we'd bought some stationery and we came up with a plan. So I sent him an email back. I said, thanks very much, I need some more. He then rang me and he said, uh, I had a feeling that that would be the case. <laughs> here's three grand and here's my head of HR from my Leeds office as your mentor. And some might say that that could be defined as luck. And I don't believe in luck. I do, but I don't believe it in that way. Because I think it's luck that you create. I think that we all are in charge of the luck that we create. So I started to surround myself with the right people, taking part in the right opportunities, and everything was going well. But for as, upward, for as much as upward social mobility is positive, it does come with its negatives. And this is something I want to see a lot more focus on and something that I'm going to be championing within the Social Mobility Commission. It comes with imposter syndrome, where you question yourself. And I don't think this ever goes away, judging from the conversations I've had with people and the looks I get whenever I mention it in a speech. But nobody really thinks about the stress associated with moving up whatever chain you're moving up, because you doubt why you're in certain rooms. You question your credibility and you do feel like an imposter. Often when I'm in these oak-panelled rooms with ministers and dames or when I am the Queen's representative here in the region, which means that I'm the most important person in the room sometimes. I was opening a dessert parlour in, in Bolton a few weeks ago and I was sat on this table with the Mayor of Bolton and she's there in her chains and everything and we're walking over to the ribbon and she starts to pass me the scissors. I said, whoa, 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 Hilary, what are you doing that for? She said, uh, well, you're, you're, you're higher than me at this point. I said, oh, no, you've got the big chains, you know, this is, this is your, you cut that ribbon, not me. So I but I still question it, even, even though I feel like I've achieved quite a bit and I'm proud of what I've done. And I often have to remind myself that I'm absolutely meant to be there. And I'm often reminding our young people that we work with in Greater Manchester that they are meant to be in the rooms that we put them in because the opportunity passed uh, that Andy Burnham has created, a lot of our young people helped create that and the branding and everything like that because they are meant to be there. And we need to instill that within every young person that we come into contact with, that they are meant for excellence. And I'm still on my journey to, to excellence and I don't know what the final destination is, but I'm enjoying the ride. Just over a year ago, um, about 18 months ago, I, I applied, admittedly a long shot, to be Social Mobility Commissioner because of my experience. And I call my experience and the journey, and I, I label it as kind of resilience, my, my journey of resilience. And I think that means trying to understand how the world looks to those who've experienced it differently. At 21 at the time, I did not want to see another government body not representative of the people that it is there to serve. Because we've all got our own stories and the only way we can write new ones is together. 
And that means seeing the values in each other's points of view and looking for common ground. And you can only do that by having a wide representation uh, as possible. And I think we in this room build resilience. And extracurricular activities absolutely build resilience, life skills. And we build it into the people that we love, the people that we serve. And we build it together as a community, as the children's university community. It's a powerful force and something that the world and, frankly, our country needs quite a lot of right now is resilience. I don't think it's going to get us a deal, but resilience is there. <laughs> I'm not going to use the word oomph anywhere. I went from that young person at risk of exclusion to now being the school governor at my old school, Lady Bridge, who's on the exclusion panels and chairing them, making sure that we're not just excluding people because the head thinks it's a great idea, because it makes his job easier. I went from that teen tour away to my proudest moment as I became the youngest recipient of an MBE in Her Majesty the Queen's New Year's Honours list earlier this year. I went from that young person in care to now influencing national change in the corridors of power. And I think the most important thing is we're not born with a certain amount of resilience. It's a muscle that needs building and we can all build it together. And often when I speak to my friends I admit that my journey is, is somewhat extraordinary because when I do talk to them and when I do speak to them, I see that most of them are just striving to get ahead. And I might be a government commissioner sitting in meetings in Buckingham Palace or 10 Downing Street, but I'm still Saeed. I'm still the Saeed that catches up with my mates over a chicken burger at Archie's on Oxford Road, not far from here. I'm still the Saeed that's in a shisha cafe on the Curry Mile. And I'm still me, and I'm glad I've realised that now, because for a number of years, I don't know who I was trying to be. I spent years putting on a different voice, trying to come across, I don't know, somebody just, just not me. But what's the point? Because people believe in authenticity. And I don't need to eat salmon for breakfast and listen to Radio 4 to be a, a government social mobility commissioner. Coca Pops and Capital Extra is fine. And it's all of that, and it's the chilling with my friends on a weekend that keep me grounded and keep me sane as I still live three streets away from where I was brought up and I still visit the same places and I'm still in Ladybridge quite often. And I think it's a duty upon me to show others that you can still be you and do well. And it, becomes down, and it, and it comes down to confidence. My journey can be replicated. It starts with confidence and the crucial things that help define and build confidence and what today's young people need are passion, opportunity, people and resilience. And the Children's University, 56 partners in 66 local authority areas, breaking into another 18 in the next few years, the potential that you all have in that network is immense. And the impact that you can have on the lives of young people can be really game-changing. And I think that no matter who you are, no matter what seniority you are, we all have the power and duty to deliver on all of these. Thank you very much. I'm going to take some questions now from Helen.
I'm really interested in what you were saying about, you know, confidence and imposter syndrome. I had the private school education, went to an independent school not not far from here, um, and I, I. Just for just just for kind of disclosure, I'm not. Are you, you going to ask me which school? I'm no, no, <laughs> I'm not against them. And I was asked on BBC Breakfast when we launched our Elitist Britain report, actually. Um, that, oh, do you think we should get rid of private schools? And I said, well, no, because they absolutely serve a purpose. If they weren't there, I'm sorry. If 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 they weren't serving a purpose, they simply wouldn't be there. And I think we've got to think about what we actually do to get more disadvantaged young people through the doors of private schools, looking at uh, scholarships and bursaries and things like that. So I'd, I'm not against them. Just No, absolutely. I wasn't going to accuse you of being either. But I think I, I quite often you know, kind of balk at that, that suggestion that because I went to an independent school, I'm more resilient than somebody else. Or it, it, it's not, it, you know, it drives me mad because I think, no, I've just got the confidence, quite frankly, and the balls to go out there and deal with imposter syndrome better mm. or, you know, do what I need to do to open those doors because I, I came through a school environment that told me day in, day out that I could do whatever I wanted to do and I could be whatever I wanted to be, and therefore there was that expectation. And so actually, I, I did the opposite. So when I actually flunked my exams, and then life kind of went very downhill for a while, etc. I didn't know how to deal with that. Mm. Because, because, you know, yeah. it's completely different from those expectations placed on me. And it, it, it drives me mad that kind of, you know, kids who go to private school are more resilient. Can I, can I ask a couple of questions? Then I'd like to open it up to the, to the floor. Um, can I ask you what role you see networks or organisations like Children's University being able to play in terms of social mobility and improving social mobility? As somebody from the, the, the kind of third sector civil society, I, I see our jobs as incredibly important because we're out there delivering. Because schools uh, and traditional kind of establishments can't do it by themselves and they require the expertise of organizations like ours and um, certainly in the youth sector they need you know youth workers and things like that so I see the role of organizations like yours like mine and wider is really quite crucial to delivering the right programs that are all about linking the kind of business world into schools because that's really important because I think for me it's about raising aspirations not only raising aspirations, but physically showing our young people where they can be and what they can be doing. Great. What practically do you think we as a network could do to support the work of the Social Mobility Commission in this, in this area? Would you have any suggestions well, I think the, for the, us? The, the, the recommendation about getting that data is really important because if we don't have that, you know, we're not able to shout uh, as loud as we can about the positives. Data is really important for us, as is case studies. Um, so one thing I'm urging the, the, the kind of staff within the commission to do is, is go out across the UK and visit organisations that are doing the right things and compile case studies. Because when it comes to us and our reports that are 150 pages that you don't want to be reading at Manchester Airport, <laughs> you know, you want to be reading the, the four page with the case studies and the images and we want digital versions and we want videos and we want things like that. So anything that you can do to help us with, with that is really important. Help us tell the story better. A lot of it is communications and PR. Mm. Mm. 
one last question from me, because I'm, I'm sure people have lots of questions that they'd like to ask. From a social mobility perspective, what, what, are there any kind of big issues that you see kind of looming over the horizon in the next year or things that we should be thinking about in terms of we where we go from here? I'm not mentioning the B word, but we need uh, to, to be aware of, um, and, and again, because of the uncertainty, we just don't know for sure, but all the research is pointing to um, disadvantaged families being worse off from exiting the European Union. So we've got to be aware of that and the financial implications that that is going to have on families. Um, and, and that might then uh, have an impact on the little luxuries that extracurricular might be that somebody pays two quid a week to, to do an activity for. So I think we've got to be mindful of that. Um, we've got to be very mindful that social mobility has not improved at all since 2014. Um, and, and we'll be launching our kind of State of the Nation report probably in about six months from now, which will look back at the past year and, and compare that to last year's report. We're also, we've, we commissioned about £2 million worth of research. So there's about, I think, 18 different research projects in train at the moment. Um, so across the next 12 months, the good thing is that the DFA have said to us that you've got to spend that money within 12 months. So we've just, you know, all guns blazing, we're on it. Um, so loads of reports really focusing in detail um, on things like how disability affects your access to social mobility programmes, uh, how poor health can, can, can affect your social mobility, um, and also careers advice, quality careers advice. So lots of things to be watching out for from, from the Commission. And lots of things that we can learn from as a, Absolutely. As a network in terms of the sort of, mm. you know, the, the learning that, that we try and provide. Yeah, and anything you can do, any recommendations that, that, that we publish, you can kind of back, uh, then, then we would appreciate that hugely. Brilliant, thank you very much. Does anybody have any questions? One question I'm sure is, is circulating around the room is how much does how much weed does three hundred pounds buy you? But, no, I don't. But, but I'm absolutely convinced that Bina is not about to ask that question. No, certainly not. I'm one of the trustees at uh, Children's University Trust. Um, if I may sneak in two questions, one was you did mention you had a mentor from the um, O2 company. I'd just like to hear your thoughts about not just mentor but role models. And the second question is around the fourth industrial revolution and technology and how it's disproportionately may disenfranchise and affect underprivileged areas in terms of keeping up with the rapidly advancing pace of technology. So mentors and role models. Great the, question. The fourth industrial revolution. Mentors and, and role models are, are crucial. So I landed yesterday at seven o'clock at Manchester Airport. I was really surprised. I was out by half past, which is, that is That never happens. <laughs> yes, I know that doesn't happen. Uh, and then after I got home, had something to eat, showered up, and I was in my office working on my dissertation that was due at midnight. Um, my, my dissertation, I'm, I'm studying a master's in public relations, and um, I, was, I was doing my dissertation on social mobility within the public relations sector and how, at leadership level, it's not representative of, again, the people it is there to serve. And I've spoken to, it must be, 16 very senior 
PR practitioners from number 10, from the global head of PR at British Airways. And every single one of them I've spoken to has said that role models is important no matter where you are in an organisation, no matter where you are at school. And it's kind of a 100% recommendation that everybody should have a mentor or a role model. So I'm absolutely with you on, on that. Um, and, and I think there are organisations that do this. So Uprising um, is, is one that works in Manchester. Um, it's a UK-wide organisation and they support young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the professions, uh, the services industry mainly, um, and, and they all kind of have a mentor, they all have somebody they can go to. Um, and within organisations, I think it doesn't even need to be a very, very formal kind of mentorship arrangement or anything like that. But one thing I did have, Alongside the mentor that I had with, with O2, I had a mentor through Bolton Lads and Girls Club, because every young person who is in care in Bolton kind of has to go to Bolton Lads and Girls Club. And um, my mentor just happened to be the deputy chief executive of Bolton Council. I didn't know what that meant. I just knew he picked me up in a flash car and went to the cinema every week. But the value in that, the value that I could just be living in that moment where I think, God, I want to drive a BMW. And you know, I, I want to, and he, you know, he was helping me through that. Yeah, important, really, really important for role models. And there's not enough in terms of relatability. So for young people not having, you know, from ethnic minority backgrounds, not having role models that look like them and speak like them. Tech and how that kind of disproportionately affects those. I don't have enough evidence to give you my opinion on that, if I'm honest. I'm not going to do a Boris Johnson and pretend I know all about it. I'm going to be completely honest with you. I don't know enough about it. We, we did an adult skills report as well that, that looked at those who are kind of in careers, and, and that was really quite surprising for me because that's not my area. My portfolio is kind of young people. But when I was reading through that report and I saw that, you know, adults from disadvantaged backgrounds are, they're really, it's more manual and routine labour than, say, the services industry. So I think it's really interesting, the future of work and, and how technology impacts that. But I can see why those from working class backgrounds are disproportionately going to be affected, yeah. Another question. Julian. Yeah, sorry, I was interested that you did drama and prior to that you were setting up your school magazine. So I wonder what your thoughts are, especially from the point of view of social mobility, in terms of this massive focus at the moment on STEM, which to my mind seems to be to the detriment of young people engaging with arts, learning more. My personal opinion, not the view of the Commission, is, is with you on that. Um, because I think that additional kind of focus on STEM does take away. And, you know, we see it in, in, in the dramatic kind of reduction in funding to arts organisations who used to go out into schools and do things and schools just not having the money to pay for that kind of stuff anymore. I think that is to the detriment. Um, the point where my school, where I'm at, and, and as a governor, we've got rid of media studies and film studies, is, is really, that's really annoyed me but we just don't have the funding to do it. So it, I think it is because I know that there's young people there, even photography we had to get rid of, there's young people in there who've done photography who are now working for the Bolton News as photographers. So I see that, you know, not everybody, again, needs an academic qualification. You know, a, a very, very good friend of mine, he's, he's doing his master's at the moment in psychology. He did neuro something before that. A lot cleverer than me. Um, 
and he can't find a job because he doesn't have the skills that's needed to, um, to do a job in Asda, for example. So he's got a, a master's degree that's useless. And I think that you, you need to have those things that develop the life skills, like drama. Emma? Yeah, my question's got two parts to it as well. Um, yeah. I'm really interested, particularly in what you're talking about around children in care. Yeah. We're developing that area of work in Kent, I should say. I manage Kent Children's University. And um, the two parts, really, we, in previous activities where we have been with children running journalism sessions, for example, um, our journalist is actually a child in care, or was a child in care. And the children in care are always really surprised by that because... Yeah. You can't possibly be because one, you're a lady, um, and two, you're successful. And when you try and break that down, they really do believe that they won't be successful because of the circumstances that they were born into. And from talking to Leslie, that has had an impact on her as she's grown up. So the first part of my question is, have you found that there have been any barriers in terms of unconscious bias, or maybe not even unconscious? And has that inversely helped you in some respects to become more resilient so that's a bit of a personal question yeah tell me if that's nosy no, that's um, and the second part is we're often looking for powerful sound bites and inspirational messages that we can give at graduations if you could have a t-shirt that you could give to any child in care with a message what would that t-shirt say I'm going to answer that one first. You are meant for excellence. That's what I would absolutely put on a, a t In fact, I'm going to do that. Do it. Yeah, yeah do absolutely. It. Put it on a T-shirt. The, ra the race will now be on to yes, whether you do it, do it first or which children's university in the room beats you to it. <laughs> and on the, the, the kind of question, and interestingly, journalism is... Um, so whilst I was at college and, and, I, and I did my undergraduate and everything like that, whilst leading Explode, um, I, I um, worked in radio. <laughs> so I did six, no, five, five years in radio, started in community radio. By the time I left, I was broadcasting to 2.5 million people on 12 stations across the UK for Rupert Murdoch's News UK group. And I never realised, only until a week before I left, that I was the only Asian who was on commercial English-speaking radio. And I had no idea until a colleague said, oh, gosh, we're not going to have any more now you're going. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He was my producer. Um, and he said, well, we don't have any Asians on, on the network. I said, oh, God, you know, I've never thought about that. He said, so, you know, what are we going to do to tick that box? I went, well, that's, you know, that's your problem. <laughs> and, and as part of the kind of PR research that I've been doing, journalists are over 94% white. So it, it comes back to that whole role models thing. And I think that, I think that you'll find people like me and, and, and like the, the, the colleague of yours that helps with the journalism side of things often do want to go back and help um, and, and I think that as much as of, of that, that that can happen is really, really important. In terms of facing unconscious bias, um, I think it's worked the opposite for me. I think they think, yes, he can tick a box. Um, I, I think that there are times where I've kind of felt that and then I've just said, no, you know what, I'm, I'm going to leave this. If I'm not adding anything to it and I'm just there to tick a box, then quite frankly, I'd, I'd rather... 
go for a burger on Oxford Road than, than spend a few hours in a board meeting. So, so yeah, I have, I have faced that, yeah. I think we've probably got time for one more quick question. So it is a question, but it's also a little bit of information first. We, we did an evaluation with some of our schools and we talked to the children about after, an evalu after a graduation, mm. how did you feel, how did it make you feel, um, what did you get out of it? And one of the things that really stayed with me was that there was one young girl and she said the best bit about the graduation was that afterwards her mum took her to the shop and she was allowed to get whatever she wanted for her tea. Now, for some children who do children's university, I imagine that, you know, they get taken to a fancy restaurant afterwards or, you know, they get a new computer game. But she was literally allowed to go to the local Tesco and pick what she wanted for tea. And that, for her, was success. And it really stuck with us. And I just wondered if you had any stories about some of the youngest people that you've come into contact with and what's your best story that you've heard from a really young person? Oh, wow. <laughs> it's seeing kind of youngest we go is 14, but then we work with them all the way up until kind of university age. And I think the best stories for me are those that, you know, university isn't for everybody, but the best stories have actually been those who've gone to university. And then they've come back and they've graduated and they've sent us the pictures of them with their families all kind of happy and smiling and throwing the hat in the air and everything like that. And this is three years after they've left us as an organisation, that they still value what we've done to help them grow in confidence and, and develop their skills. And I'd say that that, that kind of thing, and, and when parents write into us to say, you know, my young person has developed you know, immensely their confidence, they're able now to speak to people. There was, there, there was one in particular who, um, who didn't really speak at all. And I remember one of our team came up to me and said, I don't know why they've joined, because they know this is media and, you know, we do magazines and we do, but, they, you know, they don't speak. You know, they're going to go out and do some interviews. And I said, well, just, you know, let's nurture them and let's help them grow. And, and we did. And the first ever thing that they did was interview Andy Burnham on the campaign trail before he became mayor. And it was a 14-minute interview filmed in our offices. And I tell you, it was like, it was better than LBC or Radio 4. It was, it was an amazing, and that, that just always sticks out in my mind because for somebody who didn't speak, but then ended up speaking truth to power, mm. that's amazing. Fantastic. Can we all please um, formally say thank you to Saeed thank again? You. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Children's University Live podcast. The episode was recorded at the Children's University Conference that was held in Manchester at the Federation with kind support from the Co-op Foundation and in partnership with Luminate. Further information about Children's University and the content featured in this episode can be found in the show notes. The soundtrack is Sleet and Snow by My First Tooth and is courtesy of Alcapop Records. This podcast was produced and presented by me, Vic Elizabeth Turnbull, and is a Mike Media production.